0: You know, fundraising and digital are just as important, uh, particularly for down-ballot folks, you know, where where money can be a a big issue. You know, if we can create a 10% better, 5% better, 1% better outcome for folks on on the fundraising side of the house, that's a huge, huge deal. And we can be more iterative.
1: We can be more data-driven. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Eric Majewski, a technologist and PhD economist with a lot of experience in Silicon Valley at places like Facebook and Quora, who joined the progressive political arena First on Pete Buttigieg's campaign, then building free apps for Democratic campaigns under the name Left Apps. And now, with former guest on the show Shreyas Seshasai building tools for campaigns as a very new company called Switchboard. I asked Eric about his career, his pivot into politics, and what he is up to with Switchboard. You should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Eric... At Switchboard. This episode is brought
0: to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y dot com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: Eric, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: I'm Eric Maevsky. Uh, I'm the co founder at, at Switchboard currently, which is a startup that builds tools to help Democrats win elections uh, and other progressives focused on. Uh, digital and, and fundraising. I worked in Silicon Valley for about 10 years. My original background uh, was actually, I'm sort of an economist. I, I did a PhD in economics, focusing on mechanism design and game theory, and then worked at a variety of, of tech companies of various sizes for about a decade. Uh, from there, moved to uh, the Pete Buttigieg presidential campaign in 2019, moved to South Bend for that. And then uh, after Pete dropped out, i um, Secretary Pete, I should say, dropped out. Uh, started a project to to build tools, particularly for down ballot campaigns uh, that don't have much technical staff. Called Left Apps. Uh, built an, a handful of tools. Worked with a ton of campaigns throughout twenty twenty on that. And then uh, earlier this year, started Switchboard with uh, Shreya Seshasai, someone I knew from Quora, a QA platform, one of the companies I work for in Silicon Valley. And then who we also worked together on the Pete campaign. So that's the that's the sort of quick overview
1: and shreyas has been on the podcast earlier so if people are interested in that he's got an interesting story as well yeah i enjoyed that very much i can't think of anyone else who has a stanford phd in economics who's gone into the political tech field can you think of anybody else
0: um not political tech not that i'm aware of uh, definitely you get some defectors to tech in general i think you know, I was one of these people where uh, I did grad school right out of undergrad, uh, kind of an inertial thing. I liked school. I liked game theory. There were interesting problems. I had some exposure to research, but didn't really do my own due diligence on like, hey, a PhD is like preparing you for a career in research. And so um, I was very fortunate to, to sort of land where I did. I got an internship at, at Facebook. This was you know a, a different era. This was in 2010. I was fortunate to kind of land in a data role there despite by modern standards not having, you know, super strong programming or or data credentials at the time, but, you know, focused specifically on like auction theory and these particular types of problems that were very relevant to the ads algorithms and systems that that Facebook and other companies use to sell ads in particular.
1: Did you enjoy that time at Facebook? Yeah, I mean, I think coming from
0: uh, grad school, you know, where you work on a single project for a very, very long time and then it's relevant to a very limited audience, academia provides a lot of value to the world, but, you know, any given paper you write, um, particularly for someone such as myself, where I wasn't a particularly inspired writer or researcher, um, the effect of that seemed very, very small. And then moving to to Facebook, you could make small changes that then seem to have impact on billions of people. And I think that was, uh, I think I learned from that, that I wanted to do stuff that mattered to people um, versus just like, you know, having a career that, you know, I, I, I do something that's meaningful to myself, or or that 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 compensates me well, or whatever. But but doing something, you know, but but I, I actually care that it, that it mattered to people. Um, and I think tech. I still think tech. There are a lot of issues with with Silicon Valley, with with tech in general, with any specific company. Uh, I think the the promise of tech to uh, be able to hopefully have a positive impact on a lot of folks with the work of relatively few people, I think, is like it's hard to replicate. And so that. That I think was was pretty was pretty fun, and I think has guided a lot of the other decisions I've made. Met great people there; it was a great time. I think, um, you know, as the company got bigger, started to feel political in a lowercase p, you know, in, in a way that was not maybe what I wanted for the long term, and so that's why I left. But uh, certainly at the time, you know, enjoyed my time there. And again, that was like 2010 to 2013. I think a lot of the the stuff we all think about now in the progressive movement when we think about Facebook, etc was not to to me i just you know i think i think for for sort of rank and file folks uh you know at, at the company at that time we was just like just miles away from anything that that we had any real insight into that that was going on or that that would go on in the future so yeah at the time it was it was a fantastic place to be very fortunate in in a lot of ways and, and also set me up from a you know network standpoint and other things where then i, I had flexibility to to try other stuff and I went from there to do a startup that didn't work out, and that was fine. And I was able to get another job after that, and so on. And, what was
1: this? What was the startup that didn't work out?
0: Yeah, so I I, I decided that um, an interesting thing to try to do uh, as a startup would be something I had done with a couple of friends, which was uh, lend them money for grad school directly, or you know, other projects where you had you know, folks maybe without much formal credit history, but for one reason or another, was something you, you know, like someone where, where you know their community, their the people who actually knew them would say. That they were a good credit risk. Basically, trying to do crowdfunding. You know, when you think of GoFundMe or you think of these other platforms, but for loans that that people would then pay back at an interest rate that was, you know, not fantastic for the lender, but better than they'd be getting it in a checking account or a savings account or something like that. We succeeded in getting something into the market for that purpose, and and helped people helped a few people very substantially. People doing, you know, these like code boot camps, particularly, you know, some of these other programs that weren't formally accredited. And so you couldn't get, you know, the same kind of federal loans and things like that. Um, You could save people a bunch of money relative to the private options they had and people in their own networks believed in them. That was, that was a great thing, but uh, it was something where we, after working on it for two and a half years, just got to the point where we knew we weren't ever going to be able to scale it. There aren't that many people who are dying to go on the internet and proclaim to the whole world that they uh, are, are going to be in debt or are in debt and that they, they want help with that and so it just sort of became something that we just knew wasn't going wasn't going to get to a point where it made sense to spend another 5 years another 10 years working on it because i mean product market fit is sort of the you know the sort of entrepreneurial phrase that gets thrown around but we never really found the the scale of a fit that that made sense to justify continuing to work on it i think
1: that doing a startup like that even though it didn't fit is worth a lot down the road that's my guess tell me in your case, what did you take from that?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree completely. I mean, for me, there were there were a couple of things. I think in the short term, um, the way it shook out, I ended up having to do or choosing to do uh, the programming side of it for about a year or something I worked on by myself. Um, and then I, I later took on a co-founder who was going to do the marketing and growth and whatever. And so I had worked, as I mentioned, this data role, but, pre, you know, like SQL fluent, you know, but not like deep into engineer. I never, you know, like, a web app together or built you know built a complete end-end anything um, but kind of found myself in a position where at the time I had a few customers and uh, you know it, it was only going to happen if I if I learned to do that and so learning that side of it um, I still don't consider myself you know a serious programmer or anything like that but uh, being able to to build things that worked at least at a smaller scale and get them out to the world um, was a very very powerful feeling and I think it's just helpful even if you don't want to be a you know a serious engineer going forward it's just something that I, I definitely have encouraged and continue to encourage a lot of other people like just try and just see if you can do because it just helps it helps like what for what I'm doing now. For example, working with people who are who are much more fluent, I can still be an asset in ways that wouldn't be uh the case if I didn't learn all that. So that was that was great to just sort of learn the technical side in a deeper way. And then I think the other thing, you know, for what uh we're doing now and and you know what it was like to build these tools for for Democrats and their progressives in 2020, um being able to uh, juxtapose the, the the market fit of you know w- the demand for the tools that that I built last year versus what it was like to do that startup where people you know you really had to twist people's arms and you really had to beg them to to tell their friends hey can you lend me money at, at an interest rate and I'll pay you back and you know right, right, it was just very very different than something where you're you're really you know for what we what we're doing now at Switchboard what I was doing last year at Left Apps um, it really feels like you're helping people and and the way new people come. To the platform is they heard from a friend who had a really good experience. It's what you hear about when you hear about the success stories of of companies where where they really found something that people actually wanted. That you don't have to market it directly that much. You uh, you know you don't have to beg people to use it. They really they get it, and you're able to get people excited about it. They they come back on their own. They uh, tell their friends and so on. And so it's just a very stark contrast from from the experience of the of the startup I did now you know six ish years ago.
1: I think. That question of, should I persevere because things take time and maybe this will turn the corner versus should I give up and maybe give up too early is like, it's a fairly universal startup question, except in those rare cases where things take off right from the get-go.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's and it's a very interesting thing. And, and I think one challenge is the investors, the folks who, who believed in us, for, for the the, comp- the lending company from, from years and years ago uh, were great. And it wasn't anybody I work with directly, but if you like look at the ecosystem in general, you have a lot of people for a variety of reasons who encourage you to always keep going. And then you have the general like image social media thing that is like pervasive across all of society, right? of like, you'll kind of only see the success cases, right? There's all these sort of observation bias kinds of issues. And so all of these companies, you know, Airbnb, ev- everybody, you know, has a story of, well, we were about to run out of money I didn't like the FedEx founder like go to Vegas and like gam. There's some story that may or may not be apocryphal about you know gambling. FedEx's last, however, you know he played blackjack and he won, so he had enough to make payroll, and then FedEx took off from there. But had he lost, FedEx would never been a thing. There's all these stories uh, going back decades, right? Of of of. yeah, these near death things, right? And as exactly as you said, success might always be right around the corner. Um, but then, you know, your own time has value, right? And your own, you know, the opportunity cost of of what you're doing. And so that's where um, I think doing the left apps and switchboard, these projects, you know, having that that background of like, hey, let's be honest with ourselves about whether things are working, and let's let's use data and just just use what people are actually doing to see if things are working. Both prevents you from throwing many years at something that people don't actually want, but then also actually helps you just be more honest with yourself and even these smaller individual decisions and just making sure that uh, you're you're validating your ideas, you know, on a week to week basis, as well as the whole project on scale.
1: I know you went to Quora after that. Um, And Quora is kind of an interesting, I mean, it's kind of an interesting company. Mm -hmm. You went in to do, help them with ad stuff like you had done at Facebook.
0: Yeah, so originally I, I, I started working on the ads program that they had basically were just launching, um, you know, as, as the way to monetize there. And, and uh, I was a big fan of the product, knew a lot of people there. Um, I think Quora had uh, and, and continues to have a very like data driven, low ego culture. Despite having been around a number of years, it was still only a couple hundred people, uh, not even when I joined. It was a product I like using. Uh, I think writing longer form stuff online. Uh, at the time, especially, you know, felt like fun and and you got a lot of positive feedback for sharing your expertise and and so on. And so that was a great, it was something that it felt like I wanted to work on and then it, and it was the right opportunity, and it was the right time in their development to to use what I knew about about ads, to, you know, to kind of have this like specialized way to contribute and help. And then that was great, but that you know, it, it kind of took an interesting turn where shortly into my tenure there, um, I had managed data teams at Facebook and then the needs of the company at Quora were such that that it made sense for me to to move into leading the data science team there. And, and that was a fantastic experience. I was very fortunate at Facebook to work for someone who had a management philosophy around letting the people under him do their best work and not worrying how it looked if he didn't seem as in the details as they did or he didn't seem as technical or whatever. And really just like, you just try and hire the best people and then create an environment that makes them successful and happy. And I think applying that to to the core team, everybody everybody on the data team at Quora was more technical than I was. Um, you know a lot closer to modern tools and methods, uh, better statistics in, in probably every case and, and so on. So um, I think it was an interesting sort of adjustment for all of us because, in a culture that very, very highly uh, values technical skill and all these other things to get used to like, Hey, this person who's your boss doesn't, doesn't know the details as well as you. But we, I think we very quickly learned that that was okay. And that's actually like how it's kind of supposed to work. Uh, you know, and, and that person is, you know, has the wisdom of doing, doing the thing longer or doing the thing at other companies or in other contexts. And they have a, a broader view, but, but ultimately the job of the the manager and leader is to, is to provide air cover or something I, I feel per, very strongly about. And, Uh, You know, try and apply that to what we're doing here now as well uh, with Switchboard. But anyway, so that was a fantastic experience. Not something I had originally uh, planned for, obviously, but uh, worked out really well.
1: During the same time you were there is the same time that we had a campaign won by Trump over Hillary and really changed the direction of the country quite a bit from what would have been to what extent were you political and watching that and uh where were you at that point yeah i think i think i was one of these people uh who was very fortunate
0: uh to not not be political you know and it's it's a it's a it's a thing to say like it's it's funny to even say it uh that way now but um you know i was raised in a liberal household i voted democrat reliably in every election but i did not really see politics as an area that fit my strengths it was not something i I wanted to invest more in it was never something in my own life where I felt like you know if I don't work on this um you know it's it's going to be a problem for me or, or people I care about uh directly the trump election was a wake-up call for me like a lot of people uh you know you know who kind of were slumbering about this in one way or the other and yeah the way the timing actually was I had just shut my startup down and was interviewing when the 2016 election happened, and so I was not in a financial or other spot to, you know, drop everything at that point. But that that definitely planted the seed for me of like, boy, at some point I want to I want to see if I can really contribute to this area uh, of like trying to in a better direction as a country and and you know in, in general um, and 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 see if I can work on this because it's it's so important and it isn't just something that that plods along in the way you hope it will um, unless you actively defend it, whether it's our democracy as a whole, or any individual policy or issue that you care about.
1: Makes sense. I had a lot of friends on the Pete campaign, and then people I've talked to since who've impressed me. And that campaign overperformed compared to what anyone could expect out of a mayor of not the largest city in in not the largest state. Right. Fourth largest Um, city in Indiana. How did you... Get connected to that, and why that campaign?
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that the way the timing sort of lined up was around twenty eighteen. Uh, you know, as a as a movement, we had a a good a good result. You know, and I had sort of stabilized myself. Uh, you know, having worked you know for a while, where I was, started to think like, oh, okay, now might be a time to start thinking about how I can actually contribute to this in a deeper way, and. Uh, you know, in in a full time way, and, and so by by the end of, of twenty eighteen, I had I had decided that I was going to try and help as a full time thing. You know, uh, starting at some point in twenty nineteen, and my original formulation, not knowing the first thing about any of this, was. Oh well, I know a lot about ads, and clearly Democrats and other progressives have to run ads. So I'll just drive around the country and I will, you know, knock on the doors of individual congressional candidates, and I will sit down with whoever's running the ads for those candidates and tell them how to run better ads. That was the idea I had. I was fortunate uh, to have uh, friends and friends of friends who had who had worked in the space explain to me very uh, gently that that's not really how all this works. Um, and you know, they made various suggestions, but a, a common theme was. You should try doing a campaign. You should see if you can get involved. And I talked to folks with a lot of different groups, but that was right around, you know, in in January, February of of twenty nineteen, right around when when many people, including myself, heard Pete Buttigieg's name for the first time. And um, I think there were a variety of reasons where. You know, he he spoke to to me and and some of the things I think about. I'm not somebody with a very specific like I think there's one right way to to win an election or do really anything on the policy side or the government side or, or whatever. But just a lot of things where, you know, I'm not I'm not sure how many presidential candidates had a chapter in their in their biography, their autobiography about a uh, about data analytics, you know, about uh, spreadsheets. And he did. And I think the. You know the the way he spoke to just so many different types of people. Uh, every you know, from the nerds like me to uh, folks of faith or folks of military backgrounds, obviously the the gay community, uh, so on and so forth, was very interesting. I mean, just something that that I had not really seen in, in politics before. And it was also you know a fortunate uh, circumstance where you know they were thinking about data roles sooner, and that also not only was like a practical like, oh, well, if they have data roles, then there's something for me to do. But then also just like a sign to me of like how they thought about stuff and and whether it would, you know, it'd be a good fit for, you know, just culturally and and so on. And so, um, yeah, it it was sort of a process of deciding to work in the space, doing some exploration, but then very quickly, you know, in that January, February time period, getting a very strong attachment specifically to, you know, hey, I really want to work for Pete Buttigieg. I really want to try and elect him uh, to be our next president. And, I actually left the Bay Area to drive to South Bend, having had folks try and make introductions on my behalf, but with no job offer, with no clear conversation in place with anybody there. And I just said, you know what? I haven't done one of these road trips. I haven't done something like this. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to slowly, slowly, you know, drive from uh, Northern California to uh, South Bend, Indiana and make lots of stops and see all these states and, and parts of the country I've never seen and if by the time I get there, I really can't get in touch with anybody, I don't know. Uh, I haven't decided exactly. Maybe I'll keep driving to DC and, you know, work for the DNC. Who knows? Let's just kind of go ahead and do this. I, you know, that's, that was not how I had lived my life in general, but that felt like the right thing uh, at the time to just sort of commit to it and figure out all the details later. And I really was committed. I, I, you know, I said to everybody, like, I will, I will lift boxes for you. I will write email copy. I will do data analytics. I will manage project, you know, whatever you need me to do, I'm happy to do it somehow to myself at that time that also meant hey let's just get in the car and let's do this thing I lived in northern California since college you know I had never lived really anywhere else as an adult so um, that was that was kind of a fun just moment in time and and a fun trip across the country and I was fortunate that by the time I got there I was able to connect to the team there and ultimately get a role working on digital analytics fundraising focused analytics pretty close to my actual background you know of of Optimizing our fundraising efforts through ads or, or other means, you know, A/B testing, uh, looking at data, trying to help everyone understand what's going on.
1: Who are the people that you work closely with there?
0: So Emily Chang was our chief innovation officer there, and and uh, she was one of the first people I met with. She had been she had been hired shortly before. She was the first person I connected with, and she would just been hired, and and that was great. And then I worked with uh, folks on the digital team. Um, who, you know, all fantastic folks. Uh, Bridget Halligan led the whole team. Maxwell Nunes was in charge of uh, ads. Uh, Lisa Zhang is somebody I worked with closely on the email side. Tons of other folks. It was great. It was fantastic. I think it was a great high empathy introduction to politics and campaigns and the chaos of everything, but also with folks who really wanted to try things new. To your point, this was not someone where we just had a playbook and we're just going to run the playbook. You know, This was somebody where we knew we had to try new things. We knew uh, the whole team was up for new things. And people wanted to use data. They wanted to have new ideas. And I think we just had a very good balance. I think there's a lot of cases where folks coming into politics mid their career for the first time are trying to tell people how to do their jobs. And I very much did not want to be one of those people. Or people are worried that they will be like that and, and react in a way where they don't want input. And and we we avoided all that. There was a lot of trust and a lot of understanding of just like, hey, we were you know, you did this thing and we want to do this thing, but now something happened and now we've got to do this other thing. And just, you know, understanding of the chaos and just trying to to come in. I think that commitment of just like, Hey, I just like, at least till the end of 2020, I'm just going to try and help as much as I possibly can. And that's the only goal. Uh, And there are no other goals uh, I think really helped. And then just understand them and, and learn what these campaigns are like. We did a lot of interesting stuff and it was fun. It was fun to see projects, um, really help the team, you know, we built all these tools uh, internally of various forms, you know, the, my mediocre coding from, you know, my earlier startup help with just, you know, let me throw something together overnight, that'll be good enough, uh, you know, even if it's not fantastic work uh, for, you know, anything from, um, you know, let's, let's get the right email to the right people in the right zip codes, you know, let's hack something together to, to make sure we can sort of sort things in the right way to uh, like a link shortener so that our, you know, our tweets and our texts and everything can look better to, Analytics to figure out what's actually going on with our program, and, and so on and so forth. And um, yeah, it was fantastic. I think we felt good about about the result, and just helped me understand if I was going to continue to have impact in the space. You know, what it needed to look like, uh, just as far as the relationships and, and what it is like for all the people doing the job every day. And th- but then I think a big part of it also was understanding that. Despite being this sort of unknown, originally candidate in campaign, we still had a lot more resources than nearly anybody running for Senate, anybody running for Congress, you know, let alone state legislature, city council, mayor, et cetera, we're going to have. And I think that was a big driver when Pete's campaign ended to think about, okay, if my commitment is still at least through the end of 2020, let me just do everything I can to help. What if I just try thought of the tools of the stuff that we had built that made the most sense for down-ballot campaigns and just build them and give them away for free, and just figure out the rest later. That is what LeftApps was just sort of born out of. Like, hey, we can do these things that are helpful. I, I have some inkling to believe that they are helpful because we just built a bunch of this stuff and it was helpful. Um, we, I I hypothesize it's going to be even more helpful for all these down-ballot campaigns. A lot of folks I know from the campaign are about to go work on these down-ballot campaigns. Maybe we can make something work here, even though I think historically, when folks talk about, about the space, like a lot of the time, it's like, well, you've got you know you you have a bigger project and then you have a relationship where somebody at a high level on a campaign has to make some big decision and so maybe it's not possible to get people to adopt a link shortener or better reporting or just some tool that um, helps them in some specific way but isn't really like super credentialed or isn't really you know some big big contract or big thing who know who knows if that'll actually work with how busy everyone is with how things things are run how would that actually work and then and then the fortunate thing was that we found that we can do it. You know, I, I can just like build stuff—stuff stuff that's not perfect, but stuff that's like clearly helpful. Um, in the context of left apps, it was totally free and just, you know, give it away and just help people that way, and and um, and and then just take that wherever it goes.
1: I think you got really lucky. A campaign that's like a more of an insurgency is often a more fun place to be than the front runner who just takes the arrows and can only drop in a certain sense. It's also the most incredibly permeable space campaign politics you don't necessarily need a lot of credentials you had a, you had a certain bunch of them but a lot of times you can you can rise on your merits very quickly there's so much to do people need talent and you had a candidate who you know he's such a good talker he's he's so incredibly good at the retail part of campaigning that that's that he nearly got the nomination, right? But there were several candidates that nearly got it, it felt like and and he certainly was in that mix. That must have been just from a political standpoint, very exciting. Absolutely.
0: Uh it was very inspiring and I and I had never I'm I'm historically not somebody who has a ton of like famous role models or other, you know, like I I don't Normally get swept up in that kind of uh, thing, but in my opinion, it's impossible not to uh, when you are talking about Secretary Pete. I think he's one of the best communicators of of, of my generation, and I think he's a real asset. Yeah, you mentioned not, you know getting close to to the nomination, but also uh, I think for his ability to communicate all the good work that's happening now, um, you know, is something that that is a real value to. To the party, to the country, and yeah. So it was, it was fortunate. Yes, I was extremely lucky in 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 all respects, not the least of which being to kind of jump into politics and work for somebody that inspiring. You know, versus like, well, okay, I I work in politics for a living, and so I've got to pick somebody, and you know, I'm going to pick the best I can. But I'm not that inspired by that. Like, no, Pete was super inspiring um, to pretty much everybody uh, who worked for him, and and a lot of people around the country and around the world. So yeah, it was very fortunate.
1: I mean, people are still talking about he. He might be the person to run next time, even though we have a sitting vice president. He raised his his uh, level a lot in that right. campaign.
0: One way or the other, you know, I, I certainly hope will you know he has a role to play for a long time. I have no you know particular uh, opinion about any any specific anything, but
1: left apps. So you've mentioned it a few times. Mm-hmm. What was the most successful app that you created that you think was really useful and a lot of people? Took advantage of.
0: I think of the of the things that that I built directly, uh, the ability to have your whole fundraising s- circumstance expressed in a Google Sheet with some reasonable vi- visualizations on top of it. for teams with no data staff was pretty powerful, and this was something that you know we set up the ActBlue connection, which was like a couple emails back and forth, and then they uh, just you know made a copy of this template I had already made. And then everything there from there was magic of the data getting populated automatically and it overwriting things automatically. And I think that was like the clearest, you know, we, we had a link shortener and people use that, but you could have used Bitly, right? And, and you know, there are other, you know, other things. Um, but but that was something where I think it just showed the power of simple solutions for folks where their alternative is is nothing or their alternative is downloading a CSV every morning and just, you know, exposing exposing information to them for analytical purposes and for understanding purposes versus just like what data is for is for reporting. That was very powerful. Folks really appreciated it. It was cool to be able to do something that that scaled that way. One, for one tool or another, uh, over 175 organizations used something, you know, in the locked app suite last cycle, and it was just me on the other side. And so being able to build these things in a way that sort of, uh, you know, scaled in, in that sense that they were they mostly worked, they were self-evident on how to use them and they were something that people sort of needed it was super exciting. Um, the other thing to mention, uh, Spoke obviously is not something that I, I came up with, uh, you know, it was a fantastic tool, is a fantastic tool uh, to reach people and do the peer-to-peer style texting and standing that up for folks was kind of an interesting like mini innovation of just like, I will put it on a server and connect it to a database and then I will help you person running for city council. Do the necessary things you need to do to give Twilio your credit card. Twilio being the company that actually sends the texts, uh, your credit card, and um, and then you, bam, you've got Spoke. And there's no contract with me. There's no minimum. There's no whatever. And you know, we had folks send millions, and millions of messages on that. We had folks send you know 100 messages a month on that. For all of this, uh, you know, a big theme of it was it needs to work for super down ballot people, and it needs to be focused on that. Not because the other stuff isn't important, but just because. It's It has always seemed to me and it continues to seem to me that there are a lot of really smart, committed people working on this stuff at the top levels. I mean, throughout, there are a lot of folks, but so much of the attention goes to organizations that have full-time data staff, full-time engineering or you know, building for for these organizations, you know, for a presidential campaign or something that down the road will have that level of support, it's just a lot harder, and and it feels it has always felt and continues to feel to me like there is a lot of low hanging fruit for these these smaller campaigns, including congressionals, including Senate and governor's races. You don't even have to go that far down ballot um, to feel that way. Where there's a lot of stuff that that if they had somebody to help them with these things on the data and tech side, it, it would be very meaningful because they don't have the bandwidth to do that full time. Um, to have somebody on that in that role full time. And so if, if we as a third party can kind of be that person for a lot of organizations, it kind of gets back to that whole, the impact of tech and the role of tech and the promise of tech to me of, you know, as as what was last year, one person, what we are now is Switchboard, currently a team of four people helping lots and lots and lots of campaigns. Um, for left apps, it felt like in a small way for Switchboard, I think with what we're doing with texting and hope to continue to do in the future, a potentially a much bigger way. Um, it's just really, it's just a great feeling. Uh, it's really powerful. Um, you know, I think it's the right, for me at least, just an amazing uh to to be able to do something that's like this is clearly a tech company, this is clear something we are we are doing, where we are harnessing the power of technology to help a lot of people at once. It's not a consulting firm, it's not all these other things. Um, but it is like really impacting people's ability to fundraise, to engage with their supporters. We hope to ultimately win more elections and create more good outcomes in, in the country uh, and around the world. It's a fortunate place to be, uh, you know, to be able to work on that, I think.
1: There are quite a number of groups of technologists that have banded together to consult to campaigns on tech. There's multiple different groups like that that involve sometimes hundreds of technologists. There are quite a number of political campaign software firms, uh, including one that I started many years ago that I've been out of for a long time, and it's competitors. And then there's quite a lot of sort of point solutions in tech and politics that are small companies that uh, have picked a particular thing to work on. How did you see that space going into it? And why did you think it was necessary to build a bunch of, you know, free apps or, uh, you know, things that sort of start again?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I mean, you have some high level, like I had some high level hypotheses, right? So I think the, the down ballot piece is something I've harped on a lot a lot of the focus uh, is creating things that aren't gonna work the same way uh, you know for, for folks that that are further down ballot. The focus that I wanted to have and we continue to have on digital and fundraising I think uh, is something where not all of the attention goes there a lot of the time and you can see why because you know if we can figure out what motivates voters if we can figure out, better policy, uh, that feels like the direct thing that's 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 important. But, you know, fundraising and digital are just as important, uh, particularly for down-ballot folks, you know, where, where money can be a, a big issue. You know, if we can create a 10% better, 5% better, 1% better outcome for folks on, on the fundraising side of the house, that's a huge, huge deal. And we can be more iterative, we can be more data-driven. The hard thing about learning what works in this space, compared to consumer tech, where I spent all this time, is that, you know, if we're talking about voting outcomes, you get one data point every year, two years, four years, depending on what we're talking about, and that's it. And then you have to, you know, figure out what things you were doing were working and was, wasn't working, all on that basis. And so, with fundraising or with you know getting people to come to events or doing other things like that, we can tell much more quickly is this is this working or not? We can we can make things better or not. And then, as far as you know, making a new organization, it very much was this. Let's just see if it makes sense. And, you know, with, you know, in March of 2020, particularly as the pandemic sort of set in, you know, it was very easy for me to say, hey, look, I feel very good that this is the thing I can be doing right now that helps the most. And if after a few months of trying it, what I find is that people already found other solutions that are. Better And so people don't actually need what I'm giving them, then I won't keep working on it. But we found that people did need it, you know, and and wanted it. And that's, that's, I think, what inspired Switchboard and what continues to inspire us. We're just trying to be super iterative. We're trying to go where people want um, and evaluate whether we're succeeding in that every day rather than, you know, have some overarching theory. So then maybe the question is like, why did, you know, why in this very busy space was I able to build tools that were really helpful for 175 organizations from city council all the way up to the presidential efforts nationwide. Um, and I think it's just that despite the sp- space being busy, there's a lot of needs and things move around very fast. And and what was important, particularly online from cycle to cycle can change very rapidly. And so you've got a lot of great organizations. I mean, part of the fun thing about all this has been seeing all the great other organizations doing great work and, and trying new things. And I actually feel pretty strongly that there, there's room for a lot of folks solving, texting, solving, relational organizing, uh, you know, voter outreach of various kinds, all these other things. Different things will appeal to different people. And we're better as a space. Uh, any, any industry is going to be better when you have all these organizations uh, kind of testing stuff and, and trying different approaches. We can go into more about the approaches I think are different about what we're doing and so on. But at the end of the day, it's just, you know, it is actually better to have more hats in the ring. And again, if we take this iterative approach, if we kind of only do it tomorrow, if what we're doing today seems to be something people want, then I think uh, it's it's easy to justify continuing to work on it.
1: So what is Switchboard?
0: So sw- Switchboard is the evolution of left apps where we're trying to tackle some bigger problems. So now this is me and Treas seshasi who uh, yeah was a, a past guest, worked together on the Pete campaign, worked together at Quora. After Pete dropped out, Treyas, uh did some COVID-related volunteer work with with a great organization, and then uh, did uh, then moved over to the Biden campaign and led analytics engineering over there. And um, you know, Shrace is a is a fantastic engineering talent himself. He has a ton of management experience, product management experience, et cetera. And so he's the exact kind of person that me is the sort of mediocre coder who can sort of throw together prototypes or whatever, but now we actually want to make something good, is like a fantastic person to work with. And and we also, you know, just have a, a lot of other overlap and and you know have been talking for years about one problem or another. And and so somebody I felt really good about, about working with on this. And so when we started war, we basically said, what, what if we just tried to tackle bigger digital tools, but in the same sort of way of, we want it to be available to down-ballot candidates. We really want it to work. We don't want anybody to be priced out, and we don't want to do it in a way where we end up becoming a consulting firm because these things are hard to use. We want to be able to work with mayoral and state legislature and city council candidates all over the country, but we don't want to be a team of 500 people. And so you know, how do we build something in a way where it really is... You know a good tech product, and then how do we sell it to people uh, in a way that that continues to make sense for them? And uh, what are the right tools to build, and how do things fit together, uh, and, and so on. And so when we when we first conceptualized Switchboard, we did not have a particular oh we're going to start with product X or product Y. It was like we want to focus on tools and figure out the right tools. And we had a, a bunch of ideas um, for what might. People might want, but we spend a lot of time talking to the users I had from left apps or other folks on what would actually what they actually want and, and just try and be as driven by that versus anything else. And then the the tool that we built first that we've been focused on is a texting platform. And we again, I think got very lucky with with the timing. But there's a there was a major innovation in what you can do with texting this year based on a Supreme Court case. The ruling came out in April of this year. And Historically, uh, if if you did any texting in the movement over the last however many years, you probably used a tool that was called a peer to peer style tool. Where if you wanted to text ten thousand people, a button had to be clicked ten thousand times, and it's, you know that was usually a, a group of volunteers or staff or something you know clicking clicking send on these individual messages. And different software has different ways to to make that work, but ultimately that's
1: sort of the hustle and get through and yep, hustle get through. Spoke, um, you know,
0: all of these. And um, that the, there, are, there are plenty of reasons why you would want to have a bunch of volunteers behind a texting program. But one particular legal thing that, that made this clicking a button 10,000 times to send 10,000 messages necessary was the prevailing view that under the TCPA, a particular federal law that governs a lot of this stuff, the, the, the prevailing view was if you had an automated system sending those texts, you became an, an auto-dialer, and then uh, there you know auto dialers, kind of similar to like what you think of as a robocaller and, and you know this law was passed in the nineties where you had telemarketing firms dialing every number in the phone book in order or dialing numbers at random and they were jamming up hospital phone systems and all these things. And so Congress passed a law and said, hey you can't really can't really do this uh, unless you know a variety of circumstances are met. And one big workaround for that is well if the if the texts are coming from a person in some sense of the word, you know, then this law doesn't apply. And so that's where all these systems were we're going to have somebody click for every individual text, and thus, you know, we are not subject to this law, and that solves that problem. But the Supreme Court ruled earlier this year that actually, as long as you are not texting numbers at random, and as long as you're not texting every number in the phone book in order, this law also doesn't apply. Like, if you are cutting a list, if it's a list of your donors, or a list of, uh, you know, people who came to your events, or a a particular target list for a a poll or or voter uh, kind of interaction, that's fine. And so as long as the tool you're using does not have the ability to just dial numbers at random or dial every number in the phone book, you can do it without having to click every single time. And so we were fortunate that just as we were starting to spin up actual coding on, on the underlying data infrastructure for all this the, this, the Supreme Court ruling came down and you could find uh, blog posts, etc. from Major legal group, you know, law firms representing Democrats and progressives, like like the experts in the space, saying like, yep, this opens the door to automated texting. Like, we don't have to be clicking the te- the button ten thousand times anymore. And so, so we set out to make a tool, as I mentioned, you know, very focused on digital and fundraising, and let's have great integrations with, uh, you know, the tools people use to fundraise. But then also let's do it in a way where you can send ten thousand texts with one click, and you can schedule the send for tomorrow, and you can do all these other things that, in other circumstances, feel very normal but for for this kind of particular legal reason wasn't considered okay until earlier this year and when we made that decision to, to focus on this in that way we talked to uh, the campaigns who would be our first users and we talked to their lawyers and we made sure that everybody was comfortable with this and they were and so it was something that not everybody knows about in the space but if you actually talk to any lawyers in the space there's no pushback everybody agrees that this is how this works now And so we've been able to build this tool that was I think much more revolutionary than you would normally think would be possible if you're just setting out to like, hey, I wanna build digital tools. There's a lot of things you can make better, but, but we were able to make this like pretty big step change in how all this works. And uh, the response so far has been, has been fantastic from folks using it.
1: Another change going on in that space has much more to do with whether or not the people on your list have opted in and changes around 10 DLC and text spam. How are you coping with that part of the regulatory environment?
0: Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and it's definitely an evolving area. I think part of the advantage for us has been the focus is very heavily on supporter engagement. These are people who have raised their hands as your donors, people who come to your events, other reasons where they've said they support you. And so it's um, not something where you are... Uh, Likely to get a lot of folks um, not expecting to hear from you in that way, or likely to get a lot of folks who are not uh, who are going to you know report you as spam and that kind of thing. And so that's been where we've been able to kind of plan our flag. The important thing to to kind of repeat about all that is it's it's true and all that is evolving, but none of that development is related directly to whether we're clicking a button once or whether we're clicking a button ten thousand times. All these other questions are about other other factors, and so we are doing our best as I think every vendor is in the space to uh, do the right thing by our customers do the right thing by the rules when it comes to all this stuff. But we have yet to have anybody tell us, Oh, what you really need to do is have people click a button for every single text, because that's not what the carriers, et cetera, are are worried about. But again, you know, when we're talking about texting your donors, you know, texting your, your volunteers, et cetera, um, it's something where we're on much firmer ground. I feel.
1: Are you putting anything into the software to uh, make sure people are opted in, to contend with that problem. My experience with political campaigns and, and associated organizations is there's always a temptation, whether it's email or whatever the communication is, to hit everybody on any list that you can pull together. You've somewhat addressed that problem, but are you working within the software to sort of protect your your users from getting into trouble and from burning this channel so that campaigns are not going to be allowed to pump out texts? This is one of these topics
0: where I'm afraid any particular string of words I say to some of what you just asked is gonna, is going could be taken out of context in a way that I'm not comfortable with. I'm happy to talk about the broad, like, how do we not burn this channel down? I think that's a very interesting question and something um, you know we definitely need to talk about. I feel good about what we're trying to do, and I feel good about uh, what our what our users are trying to do, and I think we have a good we have a good handle on it. But because of the kind of evolving nature of all that, I'm probably not going to.
1: Everybody faces this problem. It's certainly not your problem alone, and it's one of these collective action problems where any one campaign might be incentivized to text their entire voter file, but it's not in the best interest of the whole movement to bother every progressive in the country with too many texts. Totally. I think it's, I think it's a very interesting issue. It's an issue that
0: every channel has every channel we know about every channel we will ever discover will have. Right. And, and as you mentioned, it's, yeah, it's this collective action problem as vendors, you know, I think we start from a place of understanding that there's actually a lot more incentive alignment than it can sometimes feel. It's particularly easier on the digital side and on the fundraising side, where if somebody really doesn't want to get texts from you, you really don't want to text them. And and these texts cost you know were a pretty cheap option, but it still costs a lot, you know, relative to email or some of these other, of, other kind of interventions where um, it you know it, it's it's not actually that everybody wants to text everybody. Um, if if the people you're texting are people who don't respond to these campaigns and don't want to be um you know don't want to donate money this way, don't want to be bothered in this way. There's all this back and forth about tech stop to quit and things like that. And like, what, you know, what are you supposed to put at the end of your text to be compliant and to make sure that people know, here's how we stop uh, getting texts from such a such an organization. And I have found in general that, that the folks we work with want to know the right way to do that. It's not like at this day and age, you as a campaign staffer think that people like don't know, or we can trick them or whatever, or that's what anybody wants. Um, we just want to figure out the right way to do it. And of course, there's a longer the message gets, so there's a cost involved there. Or there can be. And so, you know, that can be a consideration, but, but people are actually are on the same page of like, Hey, we don't want to reach people who don't want to be reached. And we don't want to get in trouble. I think the hope is to continue to make it, make it clearer for our folks and, and, you know, have, have the phone companies and, and everybody else, uh, regulators, whoever it is, make it clearer what the rules actually are. No digital director wakes up in the morning wanting to drive a bunch of people crazy um, but then, at the same time, we know these texts work. This is a very high ROI channel, and so you know, how do you sort of reconcile those things? I do think over the long run, there's a bunch of interesting stuff to, as as you say, about about the broader you know tragedy of the commons pieces of it. Um, I I you know I think that's true on the fundraising side. I think it's true on the on the you know get out the vote kind of side. Like, how do we make it that people get one or two get out of the vote texts a day or a week and not eight, right? And and I think that is an interesting question. I think. The party orgs have a role to play there. Vendors have a role to play there. Uh, Possibly, you know, regulatory, uh, you know, there may be roles to play there as well. We're excited about playing a role in
1: that. You have this advantage in a certain sense of building at a time after that Supreme Court decision, as you mentioned. Have you seen the other push every button type vendors retooling to take advantage of this? it seems like a natural thing for them to do but it's quite different when you have a code base and a user base and a lot of installed processes to redo something
0: yeah i think we see some change a little bit around the edges there are a lot of reasons where where people still do want to like you want to have that vo- base of volunteers who's going to be around to respond you know if you were using one of these tools to persuade a community It's not just send one message and and somebody clicks a link and that's it. It's this whole back and forth, right? And so, um, you know, whether, yes, it would still be more efficient for these groups to be able to send the text in one click rather than in, in thousands of clicks. But at the end of the day, it's still something where the organizations that are involved may not feel there's that big a difference. But the innovator's dilemma broadly is that like newer organizations have this advantage of not having the, the existing book of business the incumbent does, not having the, you know, the code base or other you know, sort of uh, sources of friction, et cetera. In this case, uh, I'm sort of invoking that to mean if you had something set up a, a particular way uh, for years and years and you have one customer on your platform who, despite all legal evidence to the contrary, is worried about this or you know isn't comfortable for whatever reason, for you to restructure what you're doing to be automated in this new way that's going to be an issue for those people. Whereas for us, since it's right out of the box this way, you know, we have those conversations up front. The conversation typically go very, very well. Um, but if somebody is uncomfortable, they just never start using our tool in the first place. And so, yeah, I think that is something that makes it a lot easier. I think we'll see other changes in this, um, in this direction for sure. I mean, I, it's. Um, I've been a little surprised at how slowly the information has diffused on this. I have yet to hear any any legal counsel with any experience in any of this say. Oh, you're wrong. Like everybody agrees. Like there are public blog posts from uh, Perkins Cooey, folks who at the time were you know doing all the representation of, of most of the big groups here, and, and, and everybody you know in that circle agrees that this is how this works.
1: Switchboard. I'm assuming you might have made a move from giving away free apps to maybe selling them, maybe being a for-profit company. Am I right about that? We thought
0: a lot about the right way to structure it. I think. Um, We thought about making it a nonprofit. So our goals and our mission are to help Democrats win elections. And I think there's enough data in this space to suggest... If we're hoping to make this into a billion dollar company, we probably are a little bit delusional, maybe more so even than, you know, all the Silicon Valley people trying to make their billion dollar companies are delusional. This isn't like a, a crypto thing or some, you know, you know, you know, new age fancy thing like that where, where there's, there's a great shot at that where we're going to build a sustainable business. So it's, it's build a sustainable business or build a sustainable nonprofit. Um, and then so there were some structural reasons where to make sure that it was super easy to only work with Democrats and progressives to make sure that, we did not have to do a bunch of licensing and legal fees up front to get the 501c3 designation or c4 designation or whatever the right thing was going to be. And for some other reasons along those lines, uh, it made sense to uh, set up, we're a public benefit corporation. And public benefit corporations are corporations, but uh, the public benefit part means that it's right in our charter that our goal is to help Democrats and other progressives win more elections. And Anybody who invests in us or takes a role with us of any kind or gets stock of in the company for any reason should understand that that's what's going on, and they can't hold us accountable. You know, a a traditional company, if if the people in charge don't do the thing to make the most money, there's some threat from your shareholders that they can sue you or whatever for this. If we make decisions that are consistent with our mission of getting the most Democrats and other progressives elected that we possibly can, uh, even if that results in us not making as much money as we could, it is not generally as easy to sue us over that. And so, you know, we, we, that was sort of the right balance of that's an easy thing to set up. And that just gets us started. You see companies that are for profit companies do great work and you see nonprofits charge a lot for what they're doing, you know, like for us to make the decisions and, and hold to the morals and standards we want to hold to is ultimately going to be up to us regardless of the structure. And so after a lot of back and forth, we decided this is the simplest structure. This is the structure that allows us to incorporate in April Write, start writing code right away, get into a beta by June or July, and get something launched publicly in August, which is what we did. That's what we went with.
1: Is there any barrier to a regular C or S corp buying a B corp?
0: Um, I don't think so. Uh, not generally. There's all these different structures and all these different things you can you can kind of run into there. Uh, and so I think people, if people really want to transfer assets or IP or, or whatever, usually they find a way to make that work. But yeah, in general the public benefit corporation isn't some, you know, other than this sort of this charter piece, otherwise it's like a regular corporation. So, so yes, I, I think we are, we feel pretty strongly that we, we want to construct ourselves in a way where, where that's not the goal, you know, to, to, to move into being the part of such a, a bigger organization. But um, yeah, I guess legally that is something that is possible.
1: So what's next? What's the aspirations? It sounds to me like, you know, this is the first in a suite of tools where are you going in general?
0: It's a great question. That's definitely how we think about it. I think, uh, you know, but as we sort of talked about the timing on the texting and, and what we did here and, and, and all the room, we still have to grow and build a fantastic tool. It uh, was really good. And so we want to, you know, and, and you see all these organizations that focus on too many things or, you know, uh, you know, leave a lot on the table with the tool they're actually building. You know and, and we're only a team of four now and, and you know we're growing but we're hiring actively but not you know we're not going to be 50 people uh, this year and so I think we are the way we think about the world right now is very much being really focused on texting and making that as, as good as we can but then also thinking about what is the next thing where there is that step change maybe it's something in our head something where we just find a way of thinking about things that that nobody else has thought of, but much more likely, it, it 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 has some external component to it. The way this, you know, Supreme Court ruling, the the you know legal change sort of opened the door for us to build something that wasn't just a little better. I think we could have built something that was better for fundraising texting than the other things that were out there, but not like way way better. The way this is way way better. And my job in the co-founder role is to very much be looking for that. You know, what what other tools uh, could could play that role? We're fortunate where I think we're ahead of. Where we hope to be scale wise, like we already have seventy five plus organizations using the thing, we've sent millions and millions of texts. We just weren't sure if we would be there that soon, and and we are, and and that's great. But it also has provided a lot of work and a lot of challenges around just handling all the additional volume uh, and handling all the smart ideas that our customers give us for what would make the tool better uh, with a team of four people. So,
1: how have you? Um gotten going financially? Did you raise money? Did you put in money? Do you just work off what clients pay you? How's that going?
0: Yeah. So we, we did a, uh, basically some friends and family financing, um, both at the outset and then, um, more recently a few months ago, uh, all individuals, uh, no venture capital, you know, firms or, or other organizations of that elk folks in general who, understand what we're trying to do. And again, that this is not likely to be the next billion dollar thing, but also that our like our primary goal is to help help the people who can move the country in the right direction win elections. It was folks that we knew from our you know past Silicon Valley life. It was the fantastic folks we've met uh, in our years in the movement now and a big group of folks, but um not something where there'll be a push to you know do things that that would that would conflict with uh with that with that high level mission. So and then, yeah, I mean, I think the nice thing, another nice thing about working in the digital and, and fundraising side of things is it's it's pretty clear to our customers the kind of value we're adding right away. And so um, the hope is to be something where we're sustainable this cycle. You know, it's not something where we're, we're going to rely on outside investing for years and years. So that's the hope. And, you know, I, again, we're off to a great start there, um, you know, uh, on the finance side too.
1: I've seen people make very good companies. With a tool like this, obviously, things like Hustle did well. I've seen also an inexorable push to be the platform, to be a whole suite of tools that an organization might use, say, particularly at the lower end where maybe the demands aren't quite as broad and and it's more achievable. There's something that seems very persuasive to me that it would be nice to provide a city council campaign with all the tools that they need from, you know, customer relationship management or contact management, more simply, uh, to communications tools, to website tools, to you, you might run the gamut of other things dealing with a voter file or canvassing or everything else. If you were building a suite of tools, you would want to keep in mind how they connect to each other. How right? Is that part of how you're architecting this like both from a business point and from a technical standpoint?
0: Yes, definitely, definitely from a technical standpoint, I think the idea of being able to handle integrations between our own tools well is important. but I think it's equally important to us to be able to handle integrations with other tools uh, well as well. And I think we have a pretty strong view of trying to stay away from really reinventing the wheel. I come from a world, you know, like I worked at Facebook, Treyas worked at Google, uh, you know, we, you know, these are companies with these big platforms where you, you as a developer can come in and, and build something on top of it, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes if it competes too closely with what they're doing, maybe there's an issue, but in general, you know, it's, it's not something where, um, you know, at least, at least the way it's supposed to work, you know, for these big platforms that the platform themselves doesn't have to build every component. The idea is to create an ecosystem where other people can build components too. That's a very exciting part of where we hope to get. That's very far from from where we are right now. To do campaign in a box, you know, for these smaller camp, campaigns where we would do everything, everything would mean, well, are we going to do a fundraising tool? I mean, is pretty good. You know, there's other ones that are pretty good. And does that feel like the right thing to do for a team of four people? I think there are firms that say, well, yes, it is, because we really want to do everything. And so we're going to, you know, whip something up on Stripe and we're going to go and do it. And, and that's great. Um, I think for most of the folks we work with, they also want to be plugged into the broader democratic and progressive ecosystem, and so that's where it's like, hey, if 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 a problem is like pretty well solved by a tool that's out there right now, would we love to give to give people more options, you know, from the other people in the ecosystem? Yeah, and would we love to integrate with a bunch of different things? Yeah, but are we going to build our own thing from scratch for these things where we don't really have a, a thesis as to why we'd be better, other than just that you know it's all built by us? I think we would much rather integrate really well. Um, in those cases. And and we're set up technically to do that. We're set up from a business standpoint to do that. So that's how we think about it.
1: What if I not asked you that I should have? I think we covered
0: a, a big chunk of it. I mean, I guess there's sort of a, a, a common thing that a lot of organizations are thinking about now is organizational culture and then the specific issue of like remote work and, you know, kind of dealing with the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. And that can be sort of an interesting, an interesting thing that we didn't really touch on too much.
1: You are not all in one office, I take it.
0: Certainly the left-up stuff was me originally in South Bend, then I was in uh, Massachusetts for a while uh, working on things. And then when we first started working on this, we were all in different places, but we actually settled pretty early on on wanting to be in the same place. Um, And that was because uh, I think you know having had now the experience of doing, I think, a lot more remote work than any of us ever had earlier in our careers, we actually missed the sort of like direct collaboration and all these other things, you know, that you get from being near each other. And the hope is that we're a small enough team that, so we're based in Washington, D.C., and the hope is that we are in a spot where, you know, we're not trying to hire 50 people. And so so that we can find... You know, a handful of fantastic people. We're not saying it's an absolute must that they that they be in in DC, but that that's like where we're where we're focused. At a minimum, we want to see them from time to time. Um, you know, and, and and certainly relocation would be ideal. And so that's how we came out on it. It's sort of interesting. I'm I'm an introvert myself. You know, I'm comfortable uh, by myself. If you had asked a lot of my friends if they had to bet on whether an organization I founded would be one of these you know remote first organizations, I think you would probably they would have bet that it would be. We decided pretty intentionally to go the opposite direction. Um, and, you know, I think broadly culturally, it's also, you know, we're trying to be, we're trying to be an organization that's a little bit longer term than campaigns can be, you know, it's not like we know some magic thing that campaigns don't on that front, but it's just very hard for them to, to operate in that way. And so um, you go I, ahead.
1: I'm, I'm sitting here wondering why you're not tackling the ad space. Maybe that's in your plans, but you have this expertise. There are some ad buying platforms that exist out there. but one, it's an area of the business where there's a lot of money that you know, and when you're running a business, unfortunately, that's so you have to be alert to that. And you know you may well have some competitive advantage from your experience. Why not go after that? I guess this
0: framework of can we today build something that's like clearly a lot better in ways that are like relatively easy to describe than what's out there. I have advised people, uh, you know, coming back to that original, you know, what I thought I would do before I had ever set a foot in, poli- I set my foot in politics. I have definitely, you know, had good conversations with folks in the political space now advising them on how to think about this stuff. That's been great. I think there are there are components of it that you could productize, but part of the challenge is that the people who actually write up the 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 copy for these ads and do the videos and do all these other things do really good work and that and that work matters a lot for the outcome and so it's one thing to be able to say like like everybody needs somebody to send the texts right whereas it's not it's not as easy to say like okay well what would the ad product be would it be us saying we're going to be the creative shop or would it be us just consulting if it's just consulting could we imagine consulting for 200 campaigns 500 campaigns uh you know with a small staff the way we think about these other things are there tools that could make life easier for the people who work on ads and who deal with all this? Absolutely. And 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 I'm I you know at, at some point we may very well get to playing a role there. You're right that that you know I, I have a background that fits with that. This you know uh, Shreyas has worked on ads as well. Um, at the end of the day, these systems are sort of designed to not be super super gameable. You know, you it's kind of like you give them a budget, you put the ads up, and then it's kind of their job to you know, figure out what's most engaging and so on. But people do
1: stuff like uh, the tools are out there will match a voter file to your digital effort and help you buy digital stuff. And I'm not an expert in it, but I know that both standalone and consulting group-based tools exist in that space. Uh, You know, in at least one case available to anybody as a standalone platform, but generally I don't think... The long tail of the market knows that that's a doable thing, and if that's where you're partially headed, yeah, then you know it's just yeah, seems no, it's to be obvious.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a, it's definitely a reasonable avenue to consider. I think on the voter in, interaction uh, intervention side of the house, you're right that there's a lot of these like you know can we get the good data to like tell you the right people to to target these ads to, and can we give you the right message for them. Those, I think, are very interesting data problems. The data and the and the right targets is the part of that that, that can be really challenging. My view on the fundraising side, there is some of that, but the, the other thing, the thing about, historically, the thing about fundraising, the thing about getting people to come to your events, the thing about getting people to sign up for your email list is that you can give data back to Facebook, Google, Twitter, whoever, that that has happened. And then the capabilities of their systems, the thousands of engineers they have, the, all the data they have from everybody to say like, okay, I can see what this, Organization is trying to do. I'm going to show their ads to other people who are trying to do something similar. In my view, generally works a lot better than trying to cook that up on your own. It's much much harder for voter interaction because, again, like you know, Facebook doesn't have a bunch of data about. There aren't just, just there just aren't that many observations of people voting for you to have this like huge huge data set. But they do have huge data sets about people buying things, about people donating, about people signing up for lists, and the fact that we can give feedback pretty easily to all these organizations. Um, also makes it where there are some important dials to turn in a certain way when you do optimization on these platforms, but trying to micro-target for fundraising on Facebook is not something that I am sure is a super profitable thing. Um, I'm sure you can find cases where it's worked well, but you know, from a broad base of things, you know, if somebody just walked up to me and said, hey, I want to run ads to try and raise money on Facebook, I would say, that's great. Make sure you're set up where when those ads are successful versus not, Facebook knows whether that's the case and focus your efforts around making sure they know that's what you want. Now, there are these changes this year with what Apple has done and Facebook's ability and these other companies' ability to see when you're on your mobile device when these conversions occur. And that may change the ecosystem in a pretty fundamental way in this regard. I am still skeptical that that will kind of shift us all towards Oh, we've got to find the exact right set of people to run ads against versus letting Facebook and Google and whoever play a big role in, in determining the delivery. But I'm I'm open to having my mind partially change there. But I think that's also an area. I mean, you talk about the you know the various carrier things and and you know you talk about uh, text being in flux. In a lot of ways, I think the ad stuff is even more in flux. Um, you know, and, and so so there's there's risk there as well.
1: Well, it's uh, been nice to talk to you and find out what you're up to. Anything else you want to say? No, this, is, this has been super fun. I appreciate
0: you taking the time and, and it's great to just talk through everything. Yeah, I've enjoyed it myself.
1: That was Eric Mayevsky. Eric is at oneswitchboard.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.